to the Just Me and My Cats podcast, episode four. How are you today? Thank you for letting me and my cats be part of your day. Buckle your seatbelts, everyone. We are going on quite the ride today. I've got 10 pages worth of notes. So this is going to be an adventure. So, of course, before we get into the main episode, it's time for cool cat fact number four. When Ben Ray died in May of 1998, he left his $12.5 million, or £7 because he is from the UK, fortune to his cat Blackie, the last of his surviving 15 cats who lived in his mansion. This man left $12.5 million to a cat. I love it. (laughs) So the millionaire was an antiques dealer and kind of a known recluse. He refused to recognize his family in his will. So he decided to split the majority of his wealth between three cat charities with the instruction to look after his beloved Blackie. And don't worry, he actually did give some of his money to actual people. His gardener, mechanic, and plumber received small amounts of cash. He also left a home of his to a friend, Ken Randolph. Ben's sister, Dorothy, who passed only a few days before him, left five million to animal charities. So it's safe to say that Ben and Dorothy loved animals. What a great way to start off our episode today. Speaking of wealth, let's discuss the millions of dollars worth of art that was stolen in one of the craziest art thefts to date. The Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, located at 25 Evans Way, Boston, Massachusetts, was constructed to house the art collection of Isabella Stewart Gardner. The museum opened to the public in 1903, and Gardner continued to grow the collection and arrange it until her passing in 1924. She bequeathed the museum with a $3.6 million gift, um, and her will stated that the arrangement of the artwork should not be altered, and no items should be sold or purchased for the collection. By the 1980s, the museum was running low on funds. People were probably getting tired of seeing the same artwork all the time if you're not allowed to, you know, change things up or, you know, but that's just my two cents on that. This financial strain left the museum in poor condition. There was no climate control system or insurance policy, and the building was in major need of maintenance. After the FBI uncovered a plot by Boston criminals to rob the museum in 1982, the museum came up with the funds to improve security. Most notably, 60 infrared motion detectors and a closed-circuit television system consisting of four cameras placed around the perimeter of the building. There were no cameras installed within the building 
as the Board of Trustees thought installing such equipment in the building would be too expensive, as it was quite old. However, this would later prove to be a major mistake. In 1988, a security consultant reviewed the museum operations and determined they were on par with most other museums, but could definitely use some improvements. The security director at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston also suggested that they should upgrade the security. However, because of the Gardner Museum's financial struggles and Isabella's wishes against major changes to the museum, the Board of Trustees declined enhancing their security. They also denied a request from the security director for higher guard salaries in attempt to attract more qualified applicants for the position. The current guards were paid slightly above minimum wage. And remember, this is the late 1980s, so minimum wage looked very different than it did today. Among the security guards, the security flaws of the museum were no secret. Before we get into the story, I want to warn you that there are so many names so many faces. So I'm going to try very, very hard to make sure that I explain this as clearly as possible. If you're watching on YouTube, I'll always try to put pictures up and maybe even like put a document with everybody's names. That might be helpful. I can link that in the description. So let's set the scene. It was the early morning hours of March 18th, 1990. Some people were still out partying as St. Patrick's Day was just the day before. Witnesses noticed two men dressed in police uniforms near the museum parked in a hatchback about 100 feet from the museum's side entrance around 1230 a.m. When asked if the witnesses noticed anything suspicious, they said that they genuinely believed that these two men were actual policemen. The museum guards on duty that night were Rick Abath, age 23, and Randy Hestend, age 25. Abath was familiar with the ins and outs of the museum, as he had been a regular security guard for quite some time. However, this was Hesten's first time on night shift. The security policy of the museum directed that one guard patrolled the galleries with a flashlight and walkie-talkie, while the other sat at the security desk. A bath went on patrol first this evening. During patrol, fire alarms sounded off in different rooms of the museum but he could not locate any fire or smoke. A bath returned to the security room where the fire alarm control panel indicated a presence of smoke in multiple rooms. He assumed that there must have been some type of malfunction and shut down the panel. He went back on patrol and before his rounds were completed, he made a stop at the side entrance of the museum before briefly opening the side door and shutting it again. He did not tell Hestend he was doing this or why. Abath completed his rounds and returned to the security desk around 1 a.m. 
at which point it was Hesten's turn to begin his rounds. At 1.20 a.m., the thieves drove up to the side entrance, parked, and walked up to the side door. And remember, this is the one that a bath just opened not very long ago. They rang the buzzer, which Abath answered via intercom. They explained to Abath that they were police investigating a disturbance and needed to be buzzed in. Abath could see them on the closed-circuit television wearing what seemed to be authentic police uniforms. He wasn't aware of any disturbance, but assumed that since it was St. Patrick's Day, perhaps someone had climbed over the fence and someone had seen and reported it. Abath let the men in at 1.24 a.m., violating security protocol. It just seems like you'd want to check a little bit more than just the uniforms to see that they were authentic. I don't know. Like, he's a security guard. Maybe he knows more than me. But what happens next, yeah. He should have definitely done some more checking to make sure these guys were legit. The thieves were let into a locked, it's either foyer or foyer. I've heard it pronounced both ways. I'm just going to say foyer because that's the one I've heard more. Um, so the thieves were led into, or let into a locked foyer that separated the side door from the museum. They approached a bath at his desk and asked if anyone else was in the museum and asked to bring them down. A bath radioed Hestend to return to the security desk. Abath noticed around this time that the mustache on the taller policeman seemed fake. The shorter man told Abath that he looked familiar and that they may have a warrant for his arrest and to come out from behind the desk to provide identification. Abath complied, stepping away from the desk, where the only panic button to alert the police was. Just soak that in for a second. The thieves had to have known. That was like the only way they could. I mean, further on, you're going to see that they really know how flawed. The thieves really know how flawed the security is here. Um, so the shorter man forced Abath against the wall, spread his legs, and handcuffed him. Abath noticed that he was not frisked. Hesten walked into the room around this time, and the taller thief turned around and handcuffed him. Once both guards were handcuffed, the thieves revealed their true intentions to rob the museum and asked the guards to not give them any problems. The thieves wrapped duct tape around the heads and eyes of the guards, which, ugh, eyes, that sounds so painful, without asking for directions. So that's, that's weird. They didn't ask for directions at all. They led the guards into the basement where they were handcuffed to a steam pipe and workbench. The thieves examined the wallets of the guards and explained that they knew where they lived and not to tell authorities anything and they would get a reward in about a year. I was trying to look more into that, like the reward thing, and I, I couldn't find anything. So I don't know if Hestend and Abath ever got an award, like a reward for like their participation in this. Who knows? <laughs> 
It took the thieves less than 15 minutes to subdue the guards. And it was about 1.35 a.m. by this time. The thieves' movements throughout the museum were recorded on infrared motion detectors. Steps in the first room they entered, the Dutch room on the second floor, were not recorded until 1.48 a.m. This would have been 13 minutes after they finished quieting the guards. Maybe they were waiting to wait, make sure that there weren't police alerted or anything? As the thieves approached the paintings in the Dutch room, a device began beeping that would activate when a patron was too close to a painting. The thieves just smashed that device. They took the storm on the Sea of Galilee and A Lady and Gentleman in Black, both works by Rembrandt, and threw them on the marble floor, shattering their glass frames. Why? Oh, that breaks my heart. They also removed a large Rembrandt self-portrait oil painting from the wall, but left it leaning against a cabinet. Investigators believed it may have been left because it was too large to transport. Um, and it was painted on wood and not a more durable canvas like the others. So they probably just thought it was too much of a hassle, decided to leave it. So instead of that large portrait, they took a small postage stamp size self-portrait etching by Rembrandt on display beneath the larger portrait. Postage stamp size. Like, hold up your fingers right now and, like, guesstimate how big you think a postage stamp is. I'm doing it right now, and it's so tiny. How could you make, like, a, I mean, obviously it's Rembrandt, but, like, so tiny. How could you etch that? On the right side of the room, they removed landscape with obelisk by Hovert Flink and the concert by Johannes Vermeer from their frames. The final piece was taken, um, well, the final piece that was taken, there we go, was an ancient Chinese goo. So, Goo is a bronze vessel that is used to drink wine or offer ritual libations. At 1.51 a.m., while one thief continued working in the Dutch room, the other entered a narrow hallway dubbed the Short Gallery on the opposite end of the second floor. The other thief joined shortly after. In this room, they began removing screws for a frame displaying a Napoleonic flag, most likely an effort to steal the flag. However, they appear to have given up partway through as not all the screws were removed and ultimately took the eagle finial that was on top of the flagpole. They also took five Degas sketches from the room. The last work stolen was Chez Tortoni by Edouard Manet from the blue room on the first floor. The museum's motion detectors did not detect any motion within the blue room during the thieves' time in the building. The only footsteps detected in the room that night were a baths. 
during the two times he passed through the gallery on his patrol earlier that night. So that's something to consider. As the thieves prepared to leave, they checked on the guards and asked if they were comfortable, which I thought was actually kind of nice. Like, that doesn't, you don't see that kind of thing very often in like these kinds of things. Um, they then moved to the security director's office where they took the video cassettes that recorded their entrance on the closed circuit cameras and the data printouts from the motion detecting equipment. The movement data, thankfully, was still captured on a hard drive, which they didn't see, thank God. But, like, how did they know where all the stuff was to take? Like, how did they know where the video cassettes were? How did they know to take the printouts? So, a lot of people speculate that this could have been, like, an inside job. So, think about it. Um... The frame for the, for the, (laughs) Shea Tortoni, or Tortoni, Shea Tortoni, I was so proud of how well I pronounced it earlier and then I had to mess it up. The frame for the Shea Tortoni was left at the security director's desk. My guess, intentionally, just being like, look how crappy your security is, I was able to take your painting so easy look at that um the thieves then moved to take the artwork out of the museum the side entrance doors were opened once at 2 40 a.m and again for the last time at 2 45 a.m the robbery lasted for a total of 81 minutes the next shift of guards arrived later in the morning and realized something wasn't quite right when they couldn't establish a connection with anyone to be let in. They called the security director who, upon entering the building with his keys, found no one was at the watch desk and called the police. The police searched the building until they found the guards still tied in the basement. Oh, you thought the robbers would be nice enough to untie them. How sweet. In total, 13 works were stolen. In 1990, the FBI estimated the value of the hall at $200 million and then raised the estimate to $500 million by 2000. In the late 2000s, some art dealers suggested that the hall could be worth $600 million. The Gardner Museum, he- the Gardner Museum heist was considered the highest value museum robbery until it was surpassed by the Dresden Green Vault burglary in 2019. The most expensive works were taken from the Dutch room, almost as if the thieves knew what the expensive works were. Among these was the concert by by Vermeer, one of only 34 known paintings of his. The painting accounts for half of the hall's value, estimated at $250 million in 2015. Some experts believe that it may be the most valuable stolen object in the world. In the same room, the thieves selected works by Rembrandt. These included The Storm on the Sea of Galilee, 
which was his only seascape he ever painted, and the most valuable of his works stolen that night. Estimates have placed its value at about $140 million since the robbery. The other Rembrandt works taken were A Lady and Gentleman in Black and the small postage stamp size self-portrait etching. What is so weird is that the self-portrait etching, the stamp size one, had been previously stolen and then returned in 1970, only for it to be stolen in 1990. So weird. People must really like that one. The thieves may have taken Landscape with Obelisk believing that it was Rembrandt, as it was long attributed to him until it was later credited to Hover Flink a few years before the heist. The last piece taken was the ancient Chinese goo. This piece was one of the oldest in the museum, dating back to the Shang Dynasty in the 12th century BC. Its estimated value though is only several thousand dollars. In the short gallery, five sketches by Edgar Degas were stolen. They were done on paper less than a square foot in size and made with pencils, inks, washes, and charcoal. Altogether, the pieces are worth under $100,000 combined. Also taken was a 10-inch tall French Imperial Eagle finial from the corner of a framed flag for Napoleon's Imperial Guard. Whew, that was a tongue twister. <laughs> so currently, there is a $100,000 reward for information leading to just the finial itself. Chez Tortoni by Edouard Manet was taken from the blue room. It was the only item taken from the first floor. And remember, the um, like motion detection stuff didn't even pick the thieves up you know, on the first floor. It only picked up a bath's movements. So, so was like a bath working with the thieves? That's what some people think, but we'll talk about theories later. <laughs> the mix of stolen artwork has puzzled experts. While some of the paintings were valuable, the thieves passed up valuable works by Raphael, Botticelli, and Michelangelo and left them undisturbed, opting to take pretty much valueless items like the goo and the finial. The thieves never even entered the third floor, where Tishan's most valuable painting in the city is located. The selection of works and the way the thieves handled the artwork with such disregard, because they just threw them on the floor, has led investigators to conclude that the thieves were not experts commissioned to steal the particular works. As Isabella Stewart Gardner's will stated, nothing in the collection should be moved. So the empty frames for the stolen paintings remain hanging in their respective locations in the museum as placeholders 
in the hopes that the paintings will someday be returned. Because of the museum's low funds and lack of insurance policy, the director asked for help from Sotheby's and Christie's auction houses to post a reward for $1 million within three days. This was increased to $5 million in 1997, and in 2017, it doubled to $10 million, with an expiration day set for the end of the year. This reward was extended following an outpouring of tips from the public. It's the largest reward ever offered by a private institution. The reward is for information that leads directly to all of their items in good condition. Federal prosecutors have stated that anyone who willingly returns the items will not be prosecuted. The statute of limitations has expired in 1995, so the thieves and anyone who's participated in the theft can't be prosecuted. So why is no one fessing up? These paintings deserve to be seen by the public eye again. You may be saying, well, there might be a lot more to this story than we thought. After the theft, the FBI immediately jumped on the case as the artwork could likely cross state lines. Investigators have called this case unique as it lacks strong physical evidence. The thieves didn't leave any footprints or hair, and it's inconclusive if the fingerprints left at the scene were from the thieves or museum employees. Here's a twist. What if the thieves and museum employees are one in the same? More on that in just a second. The FBI has done some DNA analysis in the years following the theft as advancements in DNA technology were made. Some of the evidence has been lost among their files. Get it together. Don't lose stuff. Jeez. There's always somebody losing things in crime cases. It's like, really? Okay. The guards and witnesses in the street described one thief as about 5'9 to 5'10 in his late 30s with a medium build, and the other as six foot to six foot one in his early 30s with a heavier build. Our first suspect, you might ask? The Gardner Museum's own security guard, Rick Abath. He was investigated early on because of his suspicious behavior on the night of the theft. When on patrol, Abath briefly opened and shut the side door a move which some believe could have been a signal to the thieves parked outside. But he told authorities that he did this routinely to ensure the door was locked. However, one of his colleagues told journalists that if a bath had opened the door as often as he claims, supervisors would have seen it on the computer printouts and put a stop to that real fast. And the fact that he didn't tell Hesten that he was opening that door and closing it and why he was doing it was also suspicious like boo okay more suspicion has been drawn from the museum's motion detectors which did not detect any movement in the blue room which is where Shea Tortoni was located 
um, during the 81 minutes the thieves were in the room. Well, in the museum, they were in the room, but like, yeah, the nothing was activated. <laughs> okay, the only footsteps in the room that evening were during a bath's security patrol. A security consultant reviewed the motion detector equipment several weeks after the theft and determined everything was working perfectly. However, Abath maintains his innocence. The FBI agent overseeing the case in his early years determined that the guards were too, quote, were too incompetent and foolish to have pulled off this crime. But perhaps that's what Abath wanted you to think, my guy. In 2015, the FBI released a security video from the museum on the night before the theft, showing Abath buzzing in an, identify, an unidentified man to converse at the security desk. Abath told investigators that he didn't even remember this incident or recognize the man. So... The FBI requested the public's assistance. Honestly, the public is going to get you those answers. And they did. Yes, they did. All right. Several former museum guards came forward and said that the stranger was a Bath's boss, the museum's deputy security chief. Perhaps they met to discuss security concerns, St. Patrick's Day plans, or to possibly confirm the plans for the robbery the following night? Hmm? That's always a possibility. Another suspect, there's a lot of suspects, my friends, so I'm, I'm just going to keep saying another suspect, another suspect, so just bear with me. It all makes sense in the end, I promise. All right, <laughs> so another possible suspect is Whitney Bulger. And I thought, a woman, that is such a badass thing for a woman to steal. It's a guy. It's a guy. I'm sorry. So Whitney Bulger is one of the most powerful crime bosses in Boston. Um, like, well, during this time, he was one of the most powerful crime bosses. Okay, so I'm editing the podcast right now, coming back in. That's why everything sounds different. His name is Whitey Bulger, like the color white, Whitey. But I mean... We don't talk about him very long, so it's fine. Heading the Winter Hill Gang. He claimed he didn't recognize the heist and, in fact, sent his agents out in an attempt to determine who did it because the robbery was committed on his quote-unquote turf and he wanted to be paid tribute. Honestly, that's, <laughs> that's pretty funny. Um, FBI agent Thomas McShane investigated Bulger for his involvement. He determined that Bulger's strong ties with the Boston police could explain how the thieves acquired legitimate police uniforms, or perhaps that real police were arranged to do the heist. Bulger also had relations with the Irish Republican Army, or what we may be more familiar with, the IRA. McShane identified that the fake fire alarm ahead of the heist is a calling card of the IRA and the rival Ulster Volunteer Force, or UVF. Both organizations had agents in Boston at the time. 
and both had demonstrated capability in the past of pulling off art heists. McShane's investigation, and remember, McShane is the FBI agent. I know there's a lot of people. I'm trying to help you. Um, McShane's investigation did not produce any evidence that Boulder and the IRA were connected to the theft. According to Charlie Hill, just another, we'll just throw another person in there. According to Charlie Hill, a retired art and antiques investigator for Scotland Yard, Bulger gave the Gardner works to the IRA, and they are most likely in Ireland. So remember, this is according to Charlie Hill. So, I mean, it's just one person. Okay, anyways, <laughs> this, here is some tea. If you, if you like tea, this is tea. In 1994, Anne Hawley, the Gardner Museum's director, received an anonymous letter from someone who claimed to be attempting to negotiate the return of the artwork. The writer explained that they were a third-party negotiator and did not know the identity of the thieves. They explained that the artwork was stolen to reduce a prison sentence, but as the opportunity had passed, there was no longer a motive to keep the artwork and they wanted to negotiate a return. The writer explained that the artwork was being held in a non-common law country under climate-controlled conditions, so rest assured the art is just fine. They wanted immunity for themselves and all others involved, and a $2.6 million, like, they wanted $2.6 million as well for the return of the artwork which would be sent to an offshore bank account at the same time the art was handed over. If the museum was interested in negotiating, they should print a coded message in the Boston Globe. To establish credence, the writer conveyed information only known by the museum and the FBI at the time. I could not find anything about this, so... But just know that he was... He or she, the writer of this letter, was able to give some evidence that they may have the paintings. Um, so Holly, the museum director, remember, felt that this was a strong lead. So she contacted the FBI, who then contacted the Globe, and the coded message was printed on May 1st, 1994, edition of the Boston Globe. Holly received a second letter a few days later in which the writer acknowledged that the museum was interested in negotiating but had become fearful of what they believed was a massive investigation by federal and state authorities to determine their identity. I mean, they weren't wrong. Like, they should have known if you're going to send this letter out. We're going we're gonna to involve the FBI and stuff because what if this is like a setup, you know? So the writer explained that they needed time to evaluate their options, but sadly, Holly never heard from them again. Ugh. The, the writer of this letter was too good, knew too well what was going on. The FBI needed to be more secretive, I guess. Brian McDevitt, another, yet another <laughs> possible suspect, was a con man from Boston who tried to rob the Hyde Collection in Glens Falls, New York in 1981. 
He dressed up as a FedEx driver, carried handcuffs and duct tape, and planned to steal a Rembrandt. He was also a known flag aficionado and fit the description of the large robber, except for his red, thin hair. These parallels to the Gardner case fascinated the FBI, so they interviewed him in the late 1990s. McDevitt, of course, denied any involvement and refused to take a polygraph test. The FBI ran his fingerprints, which didn't match any of those found in the crime scene. So, McDevitt was free from any accusations because they literally had no proof. So he moved to California, conned his way into TV and writing, and died in 2004. Great. (laughs) In March 2013, the FBI announced progress in the investigation. They reported with a high degree of confidence that they identified the thieves, which they believed were members of a criminal organization based in the Mid-Atlantic and New England. They believe that the artwork was transported to Connecticut and Philadelphia in the years following the theft, with an attempted sale in Philadelphia in 2002. Their knowledge of what happened after that is quite limited, so they requested the public's help to locate and return the artwork. In 2015, the FBI stated that both thieves had passed away. So, bummer. Um, Though the FBI did not publicly identify any individuals, sources familiar with the investigation said that they were associated with a gang from Dorchester. The gang was loyal to Frank Salimi, Boston Mafia boss. Yeah, you didn't think the Mafia was going to get involved, did you? And ran their operations out of an auto repair shop run by criminal Carmelo Merlino. Merlino's associates may have gained knowledge of the museum's weakness after gangster Louis Royce cased it as early as 1981. He devised plans to light up smoke bombs and rush the galleries during the confusion. In 1982, when undercover FBI agents were investigating Royce and his associates for an unrelated art theft, they learned of their interest in robbing the Gardner Museum and warned the museum of the gang's plan. Royce was in prison at the time of the robbery in 1990. He shared his plan with others and believes that associate Stephen Rossetti may have ordered the robbery or shared it with someone else. Robert Warrente and Robert Gentile, which it's so annoying, two Roberts, so I'm just going to be calling them by their last names to avoid any confusion, were associated with the Merlino gang. Morente died in 2004, but his widow, Elena, told the FBI in 2010 that her husband had previously owned some of the paintings. She claimed when her husband got sick with cancer in the early 2000s, he gave the paintings to Gentile for safekeeping. Gentile denied the accusations, claiming he was never given them and knew nothing of their whereabouts. Federal authorities indicted Gentile on drug charges in 2012, 
most likely an attempt to pressure him for more information about the gardener works. He submitted to a polygraph test, which indicated he was lying when he denied any knowledge of the location or theft of the artwork. Gentile maintained he was telling the truth and demanded a retest. During the retest, he said Elena had once shown him the missing Rembrandt self-portrait, to which the polygraph machine indicated he was telling the truth. Gentile's lawyer felt that the veracity of Gentile's claims were being affected by the large presence of federal agents and requested more smaller meetings in hopes that it would get him to speak honestly. In the more intimate meeting, Gentile still claimed that he did not have any information. I just want to say that polygraph tests, one, are not allowed to be used as evidence in court. So, I mean, I get that they're trying to get him to, like, spill his guts and everything. But maybe I, I don't know 100% if they were allowed back. Well, I mean, this was only, like, 2012, so they definitely weren't allowed then. But I'm sure they're just trying to, I mean, they still use polygraphs today, um, but they don't use them in court because, again, they're not reliable. They're not 100% guaranteed to prove if someone is telling the truth or lying. So it's possible that Gentile was just nervous during these interactions and that it that helped indicate that he was telling the truth or not telling the truth in certain situations. So it may have affected his results of the test based on how nervous he was. And I'm thinking that's why um, part of the reason why his lawyer um, said like, hey, maybe let's do a, a smaller meeting because he'd feel less intimidated um, and he'd be more likely to tell the truth if it was less people and, you know, the polygraph results would be more accurate. But still, polygraph tests are not allowed to be used as evidence in court. So if Gentile were to be put in court for these gardener paintings, hypothetically, um, they could not say, well, on the polygraph test, he said blah, 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 because that's, you can't do that. Um, and also, the statute of limitations is, like, expired, so they couldn't even charge him on it. But just some extra information. So a few days after that smaller interview with Gentile, um, the FBI stormed his home with a search warrant. They found this, I thought this was interesting, more tea, because you, this, this episode just can be tea, okay? <laughs> they found a secret ditch beneath a false floor in the backyard shed, but it was empty. However, Gentile's son explained that the ditch flooded a few years prior and his father was quite upset about whatever was stored there. In the basement, oh, there's more, there's more. In the basement, they found a copy of the Boston Herald from March 1990 reporting the theft along with a piece of paper indicating what each piece might sell for on the black market. 
seems pretty damning to me. Gentile went to prison for 30 months on drug charges. If he knew any information about the theft, they would have reduced his sentence or freed him from prison. But he didn't share at all. After getting out of prison, he spoke with investigative reporter Stephen Kirkjian. I'm so sorry if I slaughtered that, but it's Kirkjian claiming he was framed by the FBI. He explained that the imprisonment was detrimental to his finances and personal life. Then maybe don't steal artwork and then you won't go to prison. Or do drugs. Don't steal don't steal artwork and don't do drugs and then you won't go to prison. And then it won't ruin your life. Just a suggestion. Don't associate yourself with gangs either. That's the lesson today. If you don't want to go to prison, don't do any of those things. He also explained that the list found in the basement was written by a criminal broker return of the works from Orente and was talking to Gentile as an intermediary. So convenient. When asked about what could have been in the ditch, Gentile, of course, could not recall, but believed it may have been some small motors. Honey, you can get motors anywhere. Why are you throwing a fit about your little ditch getting flooded or your little secret hideout getting flooded if it's just little motors? I think you'd be very upset if it was stolen paintings worth $500 million. Just saying. Okay. David Turner was another associate of Merlino. Remember, this is like the guy I talked about in the very beginning. He has the um, the gang. I guess it's just called the Merlino gang. There are so many gangs and stuff. He's the guy who owns the auto shop and runs a gang out of it. Um, so David Turner was another associate of this Merlino guy. He's like, Merlino's the top dog and all these guys I've been talking about are kind of like underneath him. Okay. It's it's like a, it's like a little tree, little family tree of gang members. Okay. The FBI began investigating him in 1992 when a source told them that Turner had access to the paintings. Merlino was arrested that same year for cocaine trafficking and told authorities that he could return the paintings for a reduced prison sentence. He asked Turner to track down the paintings, and of course, Turner failed to track them down, though he heard they were in a church in South Boston. And remember, the museum is in Boston, Massachusetts, so it makes sense for them to be in Boston. Another associate arrested in the drug sting told authorities about Turner's involvement in several break-ins, but never mentioned the Gardner heist. Based on conversations with Merlino after his release from prison in the mid-1990s, authorities gathered that Merlino never had direct access to the paintings, but possibly could broker for their return. Despite his claims of innocence, the FBI believes that he may have been one of the thieves. Evidence shows that he went to Florida 
to pick up a cocaine order just days before the heist, and credit card records suggest that he remained there through the night of the robbery. But some investigators believe that this may have been Turner's attempt to creating an alibi. So Turner is the one that went to Florida to pick up a cocaine order before the heist, not Merlino. Okay. The FBI thinks the other thief was his friend and Merlino Associates, George Rice or Reese Felder. Rice or Reese Felder. He died in July of 1991. No clues were found in his apartment or the homes of friends and relatives, but his siblings recall a painting similar to the Shea Tortoni in his bedroom. Investigators believe he looks similar to the slimmer man in the police sketches. In 1999, the FBI arrested Turner, Merlino, Rossetti, and others in a sting operation the day they planned to rob a Loomis Fargo vault. When the FBI brought Turner in for questioning, they told him that they had information that he participated in the Gardner robbery and that if he returned the paintings, they would let him go. He told the authorities that he did not know who stole the paintings or where they could be hidden. In his 2001 trial, he claimed entrapment, that the FBI let the Loomis Fargo plot proceed so they could pressure him for more information about the Gardner paintings. I mean, that's most likely what happened, but... I mean, we need to know where these paintings are, my dogs, so... Don't commit crimes, and then you don't get yourself into this mess. The jury, of course, found him guilty, and he was sent to prison. Turner knew Gentile through Juarente, and in 2020 wrote a letter to Gentile asking if he could call Turner's former girlfriend. So now we're getting ex-girlfriends involved here um, to assist in recovering the Gardner paintings. In cooperation with the FBI, Gentile spoke with Turner's girlfriend and she told him that Turner wanted him to speak with two of his ex-convict friends in Boston. The FBI wanted Gentile to meet the men and send an FBI undercover agent with him, but Gentile did not want to cooperate further. He probably thought he was in danger and that they would figure out that the other guy with him was an undercover agent. So I, I understand why he didn't go with it, but it's a bummer he didn't because we might have the paintings today. Who knows? Um. Turner was freed in November of 2019, one month after Stephen Rossetti. Marlino died in prison in 2005. Girl, I just need to make a timeline or something. It's like, oh my gosh. Everybody's dying and stealing stuff and lots going on with this gang stuff. And All right, next suspect. 
Criminal Bobby Donati was murdered in 1991 in the midst of a gang war with the Patriarcha crime family. His involvement in the Gardner theft was suspected after a notorious New England art thief, Miles J. Connor Jr. Doesn't that sound like like an like a Chris like a old singer that you could like Miles J. Connor Jr.'s new Christmas album, like the fifties and sixties. I just that's as soon as I read that name, like Miles J. Connor, that sounds like an old like singer. Anyways, he's not. He's an art thief, so don't let me confuse you <laughs> any more than you probably already are. But I just thought that name sounds like so old fashioned. You know what? I think I know why um, that name reminds me of like an old-fashioned like Christmas CD named Henry Connick Jr. I think that's his name. It, it kind of sounds like Miles J. Connor Jr. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> um, Connor was in jail at the time of the heist, but he believed that Donati and another another name, David Houghton, were the masterminds behind the theft. Connor had worked with Donati in past art heists and claimed the two cased the Gardner Museum, where Donati took interest in the finial. And remember, the finial was the thingy on top of the flag that was stolen, so maybe, like, you know, who knows? Maybe he did steal it. Connor also claimed that the or that Houghton visited him in jail after the heist and said that he and Donati organized it and were going to use the paintings to get Connor out of jail. If this is true, they likely borrowed this idea from Connor as he often returned art to reduce past sentences. Even though Donati's and Houghton's appearances did not fit witness descriptions, Connor suggested that they could have hired some low-level gangsters to carry out the robbery. And like Donati, Houghton also died within two years of the robbery, but by an illness rather than murder. So, like, I guess that's better. But the guy still died. So now Houghton and Donati are gone, and we can't talk to them to see if they were actually involved in this. We're just going off this guy, Guy Connor's word. So. Um, Connor told investigators he could assist in returning the Gardner works in exchange for the museum's posted reward and his freedom. When investigators did not give in to his demands because of a lack of evidence, he suggested that they speak with criminal and antiques dealer William P. Youngworth. And remember, all of these criminals that are in jail and saying, oh my God, my best friend Billy stole those paintings um and here's my proof they could just be saying that because they want to reduce their prison sentences and none of it could be true so we have to remember that prisoners see the news so they know oh one of the things that the thieves stole was the finial so i'm gonna say my friend really liked that finial so I can corroborate my story better. And the police will be like, oh shit, that might be the guy who stole all the artwork if he liked the finial. So I will say that. So they will let me out of jail. You see what I'm saying? So some of these people in prison saying, 
that they know where the paintings are could just be lying so they can get out of prison. So it's, very, it's a very fine line that authorities and the public and us true crime fanatics have to walk because we need to remember that they could just be lying for their own benefit and not because they care about the case. So just some food for thought. So now the FBI decided to open a case on Youngworth and conducted raids on his home and antique store properties in the 1990s because they wanted to follow Connor's advice and go see what was up. Maybe Youngworth knows something. So the raids at Youngworth's home and properties caught the attention of journalist Tom Mashberg, which, like, what a name. Like, all I could think about was, like, mashed potatoes. Once I saw this guy's name, and I'm like, I am so freaking hungry. Mashberg, mashed potatoes. I want me some mashed potatoes. Okay. So these raids caught Tom Mashberg's attention, who began talking with Youngworth in 1997 about the theft. One night in August 1997, Youngworth called Mashberg and told him he had proof that he could return the Gardner paintings under the right conditions. That night, so remember, this is Mashberg telling us what happened. Mashberg is a journalist. This might not have happened, my friends. So just just take this with a grain of salt, okay? So Youngworth called Mashberg and told him he had proof he could return the paintings, of course, under the right conditions, because, like, yeah. That night, Youngworth picked up Mashberg, <laughs> mashed potatoes, from the Boston Herald offices and drove him to a warehouse in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Youngworth led him inside a storage unit with several large cylinder tubes. He removed one painting from its tube, unfurled it, and showed Mashberg under a flashlight. It appeared to Mashberg to be the storm of this on the Sea of Galilee. And remember, this is like the Rembrandt one, like the really, really expensive one. He noticed cracking along the canvas, and the edges were cut in a manner consistent with the museum's reports, as well as Rembrandt's signature on the ship's rudder. Mashberg wrote about his experience in the Boston Herald, of course, leaving out details to hide Youngworth's identity and the painting's location. He reported that his quote-unquote informant, most likely Youngworth, told him the robbery was pulled off by five men and identified two. Donati was one of the robbers, and Houghton was responsible with moving the art to a safe house. The FBI discovered the location of the warehouse several months later and raided it, finding absolutely nothing. Youngworth's claims and his showing of the painting to Mashberg are heavily disputed. Youngworth supplied paint chips to Mashberg and federal authorities reported that they were definitely from Rembrandt's time, but did not match oils used for the storm on the Sea of Galilee. The way Mashberg described the painting as being unfurled 
has also been heavily scrutinized, as the painting was covered with a very heavy varnish that would make it difficult to roll up. Authorities and the museum began working with Youngworth after Mashberg's story was published, but of course he had to make negotiations so difficult because eh, drama. He would not work with authorities unless his demands could be met, which included full immunity and Connor, remember Christmas Connor from earlier, <laughs> uh, Connor's release from jail. The authorities were skeptical of his story and offered him partial immunity. I mean, that's quite nice for, like, not even knowing if this guy is telling the truth. The U.S. attorney overseeing the case eventually seized talks with Youngworth unless he could provide more reliable evidence that he had access to the Gardner works. He again provided a vial of paint chips purportedly from the Storm of Galilee, and 25 color photographs of the painting A Lady and Gentleman in Black. A joint statement from the museum and federal investigators announced that the chips were not from the stolen Rembrandts, though they did test as being from 17th century paintings and could potentially be from the concert. In 2014, investigative reporter Stephen Kirkjian wrote to a gangster, Vincent Ferrara. This would have been Donati's superior during the gang war, inquiring if he had any information about the Gardner theft. He received a call back from the associate of Ferrara, who explained that the FBI was wrong in suspecting the Merlino gang's involvement and claimed that Donati organized the robbery. The caller explained that Donati visited Ferrara in jail about three months before the theft, after Ferrara was charged for murder, and told him that he was going to do something to get him out of jail. Three months later, Ferrara heard news about the Gardner theft, after which Donati visited him again and confirmed that he was involved in the robbery. He claimed to have buried the artwork and would start a negotiation for his release once the investigation cooled down. The negotiations, of course, never occurred because Donati was murdered. Kukjin believes Donati was motivated to free Ferrara from prison because Ferrara could protect him in the gang war. Remember, a lot of this stuff is self-motivated. Protection, um... Nobody was really, like, doing it because they want to help a friend. There's always something in it for them, prison-wise. Very confusing. A friend of Warante also corroborated that Donati organized the robbery and that Donati gave paintings to Warante when he became concerned for his own safety. Donati was close friends with Warante. So the two were tight. Um, they were seen at a social club in Revere shortly before the robbery with a bag of, are you ready for this? With a bag of police uniforms. Bum, bum, bum. Kind of sus, right? In March of this year, 2022, Boston police told the local media that the 1991 murder of Jimmy Marks could possibly be linked to the art heist. 
Anthony Amore or Amore, but I'm guessing Amore. Amore is more fun. I'm going to say Anthony Amore. <laughs> um, Chief of Security for the Gardner Museum told Boston 25 News that a recent tipster prompted officials to take another look at the murder of criminal Jimmy Marks because the killing may have possible links to the heist. On a February evening, 11 months after the heist, Marks was gunned down while unlocking the front door to his apartment in the Boston suburb of Lynn, Massachusetts. The killer had unscrewed the light bulb over the door to ensure that the victim would not see what was coming. A classic mob-style approach. The assailant shot Marks twice in the back of the head and fled the scene. To this day, the crime still remains unsolved. According to the tip that Amore received, just days before he died, Marx was reportedly bragging about possessing two of the stolen paintings and that he had hidden some of the stolen artworks. He had connections to subjects suspected of being involved in the heist. Authorities aren't sure what role Marx had in the heist, but it was very likely related to his death. Marx was friends with Bobby Horente and his family. Marx spent some time in prison for a bank robbery in the 1960s. And as a drug dealer with many connections among the Boston elite, he also spent a significant amount of time at the home of the Horentes in Maine. Marx's niece, Darlene Finnegan, who was 26 at the time of the murder, told the Boston Globe that shortly before his death, Marx told her that he had something big coming up, and he wasn't sure if he was going to do it. At the time, she thought he had meant selling cocaine. It could perhaps have been something a lot bigger. Another connection between Marx and the theft emerged in 2015, when Elena Juarente, Bobby's widow, pointed to a picture of Marx during an interview with investigators and declared that her husband had killed him. What? Plot twist. Bobby Horente died in 2004 and Elena passed in 2018. According to Amore, she was very emotional while talking about the fact that he had been killed by her own husband. I'm sure that's like a lot to process. Amore brought these findings to the media in hopes that renewed attention from the press might yield more information about the circumstances of Mark's death or the fate of the missing Gardner paintings. <coughs> Thirteen pieces of artwork worth over $500 million stolen by two thieves leaving one museum heartbroken by their disappearance for 32 years. Whether this art heist was an inside job or not, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum and its visitors are still holding on to hope as 13 blank picture frames and display cases haunt its walls. There still remains a $10 million reward for any information leading to the recovery of the stolen works. If anyone listening to this episode 
even knows the tiniest inkling of information that can bring this artwork to its rightful home, please, please contact Anthony Amore, Director of Security at 617-278-5114 or reward at Gardner, and that's G-A-R-D-N-E-R, GardnerMuseum.org. Reward at GardnerMuseum.org or 617-278-5114. What a journey that was. It has been over an hour, and I'm sure y'all are so tired of listening to my voice. I am too, to be quite honest with you. Next week, we will be talking about the George Jackson Brigade and there may or may not be a special guest joining us next week, so keep your eyes and ears peeled for the next episode. I love you. My cats love you. Don't steal artwork. Don't go to jail. Be a good person. Don't join gangs. That's the lesson today. Um, love ya. See you next week. Bye.